Hey, one of the things that I love about the internet is that there's an awesome way to be able to, to stay updated with how long it is until events you're looking forward to. Like I've got a friend who's moving and so she's got a countdown clock. Some of you who are Christmas people, you already have your countdown clock going for Christmas. But, but we have another countdown clock going and it's the countdown till Easter. And today is actually 48 days till Easter. Some of you know this because you've already bought those despicable candies called Peeps at the store. Um, and I just want you to know that Corner Center is a peep-free zone. We don't allow peeps in here because they're dis- disgusting and terrible. But, but we're beginning a journey today. We're beginning the journey towards Easter. And traditionally, that journey has been called Lent in the history of the church. Not Lent, that's what gets stuck in your dryer, but Lent, L-E-N-T. And it's been a period in the history of the church where, where we take an opportunity to stop. And to reflect and to look within, to, in John's words, to check our hearts. And one of the, the tragedies of our culture is that in our culture, Christmas is a huge deal and Easter is a, a lot less of a deal. And that's because we prepare for Christmas in such an intentional way. I mean, starting like mid-November, you get in Christmas mode. And for six weeks, you get ready. So when it finally comes, you're so ready to celebrate. But for many of us, outside of buying some candy for an Easter basket or maybe shopping for some pastel clothes for church, we don't do a whole lot to prepare for Easter. But according to the scriptures, according to the Apostle Paul, if you take Easter away, we have nothing. We've got no hope. We have no reason to have a view of the future that's better than the past. And so as a church, we're beginning an intentional season of preparation. We're examining our hearts and we're looking within and we're saying, hey, is it possible that I've put my hope in something else other than Jesus? Is it possible that there are things in my life that that I've allowed in that are getting in the way of me connecting with God? And so traditionally in the church, people have fasted and prayed in this season. They've given up things so that they can intentionally prepare so that when Easter comes, it's an amazing celebration. And one of the tragedies is is that in life, we often wait until something terrible happens to look in the mirror and reflect, to examine ourselves and say, am I really living for what's worth living for? And Lent and the season before Easter allows us to choose that time in advance, to look within and not wait for a crisis to come to do that self-examination. So that's that's the journey we're beginning today. And as I was thinking about that, I was reminded of, of this moment with my dad. This is 10 years ago. I was ordained to be a pastor 10 years ago in May. And my dad has been a pastor for 36 years, same church. It's an amazing legacy. My dad's not a perfect man, but, but as I continue to watch pastors that I have looked up to or known about from afar choose destructive choices that, that cost them their ministries because of sexual immorality or financial impropriety or, or abuse of power, to be able to know that I have a dad who for 36 years has never been accused of anything sexually or financially or in terms of his character is amazing. And, and my dad's preached a lot of sermons, and I've forgotten a lot of my dad's sermons. Sadly, I don't remember a lot of them. But a few lines have stuck. And one of the lines of my dad that stuck is this, that we're all heading into a crisis, in a crisis, or heading out of a crisis. That this is the reality of our lives. And it may seem like a downer, but what we try to do here at Cornerstone is we try to have fun, but we try to also talk honestly and truthfully about life. And the truth is, for many of you right now, you are in the middle of a crisis. You're in the middle of a a moment that you didn't plan for, that you didn't see coming. Because she walked in and she said she wants to have a divorce. Or he walked in and he said he's been unfaithful. Or they walked in and they said you're fired. Or you moved to Prescott and you had a vision of your retirement and it's not going according to plan. Or you had an idea of how 2019 was going to go in January. 
but now it's March. It's radically different. You thought parenting was hard, and then now it's gotten impossible. You you thought that you were going to be able to enjoy taking care of your loved ones, but it's gotten incredibly difficult, and it's a huge burden to bear. Or you thought you'd always be a positive person, and now you're battling depression. See, these crisis moments, they come for all of us. And if you're not in one, you probably can recall one. And if you're not in one, I'm guessing you're probably headed for one. And so this series is about how do we have hope in hard times, because regardless of how much money you make or how healthy you are, hard times come for all of us. And so whenever we introduce a series, we try to get clear what the series is about. And so often on a Sunday, you'll hear me share a a big idea for a specific message. Well, today I want to share with you in a little bit the big idea for this message, but I want to start at the 30,000 foot level for this series. This series is about this basic idea. And if you have a handout, you can follow along with this. The big idea of the series is this, that our view of the end enables us to reframe and overcome the middle. This series is about how our view of the end enables us to reframe and overcome the middle. Now, we love beginning things. We love the beginning of things, and we love the ends of things. We we love when, when a baby is born, but the middle part after that, where they're not so cute, and they start saying no, and they start throwing up and having blowouts, it's a lot messier. You know, it's awesome when you start school for a new journey, but then when you're a freshman late or sophomore late or junior late, and it doesn't ever seem like you're ever going to graduate, the middle is hard. And I love what Scott Belsky says about the middle in his book, The Messy Middle. He says, no extraordinary journey is linear. In reality, the middle is extraordinarily volatile, a continuous sequence of ups and downs, flush with uncertainty and struggle. And most of our lives are not beginnings and ends. They're messy middles. And messy middles is where we're tempted to give up. Messy middles is where we get discouraged. Messy middles is where we lose hope. And so our hope for this series is that we can gain a vision of the end and the future so that we can reframe and overcome the middle. And to do that, we're going to dive into, as Jamie said, Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3. But I want to give you some context. If you've never read Revelation before, I don't want you to be lost. I want you to be able to track with us. And so I want to give you some context on this book, the book of Revelation. First, the book of Revelation was written by a man named John. John lived in the very first century, the zeros AD. And he was one of the disciples or followers of Jesus. He was, in fact, one of his closest friends. And John in Revelation 1-4 writes about himself and he says, John, to the seven churches there in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and was and who is to come from the seven spirits here before the throne. So John makes it clear from the beginning of his letter that he's writing this book and it's significant because he was well respected in the, in the early church. Revelation's also written by John from an island called Patmos. Now this is important because John was not living a great life in terms of externals. He'd been exiled. He'd been sent to this island in the middle of nowhere, and he was not allowed to leave. In Revelation 1.9, it says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation. Tribulation's a big word for difficulty. And the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Christ Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So John refuses to compromise his faith, even when the Roman Empire says, There's consequences for that. And so they send him to this island 
in the middle of the Mediterranean. This is modern-day Turkey. It's off by himself, and he can't leave. And while he's on that island, he gets an incredible vision. He, he writes down this book that's to be read aloud. What's hard for you to understand is that three-quarters of the history of the church, nobody's had this. Most of you came in with this, or you came with your Bible on this. But in the day of John, only 10 to 15% of the population could read, and none of them had a copy of the Bible for themselves. And so this letter was to be written down on a scroll, and a, a man would be sent across as a courier to take this scroll and to read it aloud to people because they couldn't read it for themselves. That was going to be hand-carried. And what's interesting is we study these seven messages we're going to study in this series is that it's actually a map. That one person could have started at the beginning with Ephesus, the church we're going to discuss today, and gone from one city to the next reading aloud this letter. Finally, this, this, this book, Revelation, is it, it's involved in several ancient genres. Some of you I know are people who love to read nonfiction. Some of you hate nonfiction. You only read fiction. Some of you read thrillers. Some of you read romances. Well, the book of Revelation is interesting because it's a bunch of different genres together. It's a, a letter. It's some prophecy about the future, and it's apocalyptic. It means it's the end of the world, and so it's got some pretty crazy imagery. And the final thing about Revelation is this, that it's a vision from Jesus. John is given a vision from Jesus of what the end is going to be like, and he gives it to some people who need some hope. And I have a hunch that regardless of how long you've been following Jesus, or if you're not even sure you believe about Jesus, you could use some hope today. Now, one of the things I like to do when I teach is I like to talk about what you're thinking that you don't know that I know that you're thinking. You follow that? So one of the things I think some of you are thinking when you hear the word revelation is this, is that revelation is super weird, Scott. And people have done really weird stuff with it, like make bad movies with Nicolas Cage. And so sometimes when you hear the word revelation, you go, oh, that's really weird. People on TV have these huge charts and it's just bizarre. And so you're like, I'm not sure I can do this. And so I just want you to know that if you're nervous, it's going to be okay. We're not going down the weird track. There, there are others of you that Revelation is your favorite book in the Bible. You study it, you learn about it, you have the charts, and you love it. And so for you, I will say that this might be a disappointing series. Because I'm not going to tell you who the Antichrist is. I, I'm not going to tell you the date that the world is going to end. I'm not going to give you that kind of specifics because I don't think that at its heart, that's what Revelation was for. I think Revelation was written to a group of people who were in the middle of a very difficult time. And they were discouraged. They were persecuted. They were watching their friends being dipped in oil and used as human torches for the emperor. They were being blamed by the empire for all the problems in the empire. And when you're watching your friends die because they're holding on to their faith, it gets very discouraging about your future. And so John sends this letter to them so that they can find hope in their hard times. And these aren't first world problem hard times. These are life and death hard times. And he speaks to them and he gives them a view of the end that helps them to overcome the middle. And today what we're going to do is we're going to look at the first message he gives the first group that would have gotten this letter. And the idea he has for them is this. Here's the main point, the big idea for this message. That Jesus isn't just concerned with what we do and what we believe. He cares about the heart behind it. Jesus isn't just concerned that you believe the right things and do the right things. He cares about the heart behind that. And this message comes from the book of Revelation chapter 2. 
So if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open up to Revelation chapter 2. It's pretty easy to find. It's the last book in the Bible. So physical Bible, go to the very end. Digital Bible, scroll all the way to the very end. And then you hit Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And if you want to follow along in this series, like if you want to get ahead, we're going to tackle one of these messages every week. So this week is the church to Ephesus. My heading for the next section of my Bible says to the church at Smyrna. And so if you want to read before you come in this series, you can totally do that and get ahead and get some idea of where we're going. And, and we don't often read a big section of scripture in a chunk. And so I want to ask you if you'd stand with me while we read this passage together and honor God's word that has lasted for so long and meant so much. Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. We'll explain those images later, but basically this is coming from Jesus. I know your works, Jesus says, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, And you found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent." Yet this you have, you hate the words of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. God, we pray that you would speak powerfully through your word over the next seven weeks, that this would be an incredible preparation, and that Easter would be an amazing celebration. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. Now, from those seven verses, I've got three observations I want to make with you this morning about this text that's related to what the message was to them and it was to us. Now, remember, the Bible was not written to us. It was written to this church, but it has meaning for us still. And to understand the meaning for us, we've got to understand the meaning for them. Here's the first observation. Jesus honors faithfulness and faithfulness honors Jesus. Jesus honors faithfulness, and faithfulness honors Jesus. This letter that we just read, this message, was written to a church in a city called Ephesus. The city still exists today, and it was located in the the eastern end of the Roman Empire. Rome is over here, this is Italy, this is Greece, and this is modern-day Turkey. And Ephesus is right here, and it was the the fourth largest city in the empire. It was 250,000 people. Which may not seem like much today when we have cities of 10 and 20 and 30 million. But in the ancient day, it was, it was massive. And it was a hugely influential city. And it was a, a, a key to this whole section of the Roman Empire. And it was a very diverse city. A city full of many different gods. It was the home to this, the Temple of Artemis, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And it's actually one of 14 temples to different gods in the city. So the average Ephesian... Worshipped many gods. That was kind of normal. Um, It was kind of paganism. Pick your god. Whatever you like. You could go to a different temple every two weeks and not repeat one. It was just that culture. And so in that place, 
that you have these group of followers of Jesus that are trying to remain faithful to Jesus, trying to hold on to the truth, while everyone around them is going in a different direction. And he said, it sounds like our world today. Yes, it's becoming more and more like our world today, where Christians are a minority amidst a largely different majority. And Paul commends them. He says some things about them. He says that, that they've held to the truth, that they've persevered amidst persecution, and they've resisted false teachers. He talks about them having patient endurance. They've gone through hard times, and yet they've endured. That the people that tried to come as apostles when they were false apostles, there's even this reference to a group called the Nicolaitans, which nobody, by the way, knows who they are. All we know is they were, they were teaching something that was false and against the Bible, and they stand it up against it. And what's interesting is that this church apparently has been vulnerable for a long time. Earlier in the book of Acts, the, the apostle Paul spoke to their leaders, and he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples from them. This was years before Revelation was written. And then Paul sent his, his main disciple, a man named Timothy. He says, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So this was a place that was vulnerable to false teaching, and yet they held on to the truth. And so if you have friends around you who don't understand why you're at church today, if you've got friends who don't understand why you believe what you believe today, if there's people who make fun of you for your faith, you are not alone. This church is in the same place. And it was difficult to be faithful, yet they remained faithful. And I think we need to lean into this. Because some of you grew up in an era where it was actually a benefit or a check mark or a plus for you to be a Christian. There was an era where you couldn't run for public office unless you went to church. But now we're in a very different era. And actually, the era we're moving into is actually more and more like the era of the Bible. I stumbled on a quote from Philip Yancey a couple years ago. He's a Christian author. And he said this. He said, I, I, several years ago, a Muslim man said to me, I've read the entire Quran and can find no guidance in it on how Muslims should live as a minority in society. He said, I've also read the entire New Testament and can find no guidance in it on how Christians should live as a majority. If you read the Bible, there's no concept for Christians to be the dominant cultural influencers. If you read the Bible, Christians are always in the minority. They're always the smaller group. And so we've enjoyed the last couple hundred years in America this, this new experiment. But for the vast majority of 2,000 years since people have been following Jesus and around the world outside of this continent, that's not been the norm. In fact, the areas in the world where Christianity is growing the fastest is, is not North America, and it's not Europe. It's in the global south, in, in South America and Africa and in Asia. By 2050, just 30 years from now, the most Christian continent in the world will be Africa. Philip Jenkins, who's a, a professor at Penn State University, said that in 1900, there were 10 million Christians in Africa. And by 2000, that number had swelled to 300 million. That wasn't because life was easy in Africa in the 20th century. It wasn't because it was the dominant. It's because Christianity has thrived across 2,000 years where people had to be faithful in environments where it was difficult to be faithful. When communism took over China in the 20th century, we wrote off China and said there's no hope for the church there. 
And then 15, 20 years ago, when the doors opened, we realized that what had started with a few thousand believers was now 50 million strong. You say, Scott, it's hard to be faithful here. Yes, being faithful is actually the place that God calls us, whether it's easy or not. And he honors faithfulness, and faithfulness honors him. And so if it's becoming harder and harder to be faithful to Jesus, our lives are beginning to line up more and more with this book. And we're beginning to understand more and more the message that came to this church at Ephesus. But it isn't just about faithfulness. Number two, we learn that Jesus cares about our hearts the most. Remember the big idea? Jesus doesn't just care about what we do and what we believe. He cares about our hearts the most. And we're about to see that in the message. So after commending the Ephesians, Jesus says, but I have this against you. You abandoned the love that you had at first. If I were to translate this into a song and do karaoke, I might channel my inner Tom Cruise and sing, you've lost that love and feeling. But I won't do that because I love you too much. <laughs> but what he says is that you've, you've abandoned the love at first. You're believing the right things and you're doing the right things. But guess what? Your heart's not in it. You're doing it for the wrong reason. And this is the danger every time faith is passed from one generation to the other. Many times parents teach their kids what to believe and why to believe what, and how to, how to act, but they forget to teach them why. It's like that old story about the, the daughter who kept cutting off the end of the turkey on Thanksgiving to fit it in the container. And this happened, and she called her mom and said, why do you do that? Cause, well, because my mom does that. She calls her mom, why do you do that? Well, my mom does that. Finally, I get a hold of the great-grandma, and she says, my, 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 my tin was too small, so I just cut it off every time. They didn't understand why they did it, and why is so important. It's not enough to do the right things or believe the right things if your heart isn't in it. This is the lesson from the Apostle Paul. In 1 Corinthians 13, he says, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but I have not love... I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. He says, if I have prophetic powers and I understand all the mysteries, and if I have all knowledge and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. And if I give away all I have and deliver my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. This is the challenge for us. Have we settled for believing the right things about God and doing the right things? But we've done it from a heart that's absent of love. This is why we started with a video that says, check your heart. Because a lot of times in the church, we have people who are doing all the right things externally, but they're doing them for all the wrong reasons. This is why Jesus was so harsh on the Pharisees. They believed the right things, and they did the right things. But inside, he said they were whitewashed tombs. The outside looked good, but the inside was rotting death. So why are you here today? Are you here today because it was the right thing to do? Are you here today because it was Sunday and it's what you do on Sunday? Are you here because you came to see your friends? Why are you here? I'm not saying it's a bad thing to be here. What I'm saying is it's not enough to be here. A matter of what's going on in your heart. And I speak this from personal experience. Because there was a season in my life where I was an arrogant, judgmental Pharisee. I thought I was better than people. I grew up and I had all the right answers. I grew up and I did all the right things. And I looked down on people. I kind of embodied this meme from the office. I was a little bit of Dwight Schrute. 
And people who told me, who knew me in that era, that I was difficult to be around because I gave off that vibe that I thought I was better than people. And it's because I did. And it wasn't until God broke me of that that I realized that I had lost what was most essential. I had lost that heart of love. In another season in my life, I became incredibly cynical. Uh, I became incredibly uh, hurt and wounded. And cynicism is nothing else other than a, a shield around your heart to make sure you're never hurt again. And I crossed my arms and I said, nobody's ever going to get in. I'm just going to poke holes in everybody else's worldview. And I lost that love. And maybe you can relate. Maybe your heart has been dead for some time, but you've been going through the motions. Maybe you've been burned out and you've just been hanging on. And if you don't find out how to recapture that love, it's going to be incredibly difficult for you to keep going. I love what McManus says, Irma McManus. He says, we cannot live unaffected by love. We are most alive when we find it. We're most devastated when we lose it. We're most empty when we give up on it. We're most inhumane when we betray it. And we're most passionate when we pursue it. Love is everything. And there are many people who are going through life with a dead heart. And Jesus says, if you want to live into the future, if you want to experience all that I have for you, it's not enough for you to believe the right things and do the right things if you've lost your first love. And then he gives them a final word, a word of encouragement about the future. That's my third observation. And that's that Jesus promises us abundance on the other side of hard times. He doesn't promise that you're going to be uh, immune to hard times if you follow Jesus. By being here at church, you're not like giving yourself a shot that prevents hard things from happening to you. Followers of Jesus are not immune from cancer, depression, foreclosure, or divorce. But he does promise us in the midst of hard times to sustain us. And he promises us abundance on the other side of hard times. And he says this in Revelation 2.7. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, your Bible may say, to the one who overcomes. And that's the inspiration for the title of the series. He says, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He gives us this, this image of this tree. That some of you may remember that comes from the book of Genesis. And he says, in the end, you will be able to taste from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. What he's doing is he's embodying our big idea of the series. Where where I said our view of the end enables us to reframe and overcome the middle. If you're in a difficult or hard time today, and it is impossible for you to see a different future, you will give up. If you're in a hard season today or a messy middle and the end doesn't look any better than where you are right now, you're going to throw in the towel and get discouraged. But if you can see a vision of the end that is better than where you are today that can give you hope to keep going. And what he does, he says, you're not in paradise right now. It's not easy right now. You're struggling right now. But I promise you, when you overcome You'll be able to taste and, see, taste and see. You'll be able to take part in the fruit of this tree. In Revelation 3.22, sorry, Genesis 3.22, other end of the book, where Jesus uh, speaks to Adam and Eve after they've messed up in the garden, he says this, the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. 
See, what Jesus is promising them, and I think he's promising us, is that we get to take part in what Adam and Eve missed out on. We're not going to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that they chose to eat when they sinned against God. We're going to be able to taste and see of the tree of life, which promises eternal life that they didn't get to. You might say, man, I wish I could go back to the garden before the world was so broken. Guess what? You're going to get better than the garden. The garden's just a taste of the paradise of God. And some of you are in incredibly hard times right now. This isn't theoretical. You're in the hardest season of your life. And what Jesus says in this passage is to the one who overcomes, to the one who endures, to the one who doesn't give up, he says, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. I promise to sustain you here in your hard time, and I promise to satisfy you and give you abundance. And if you can hold on to that vision, if you can lock your hope on that, you can endure you can overcome. You can allow God to reframe the circumstance that you're in. But remember, it's not enough to just believe the right things or do the right things. He cares about your heart. And it's not enough to just believe things are going to get better. It's going to have to begin to affect your heart. And so today, before we go, I've got a couple next steps I want to encourage you to take this week. And on the back of your handout, I love the sound of pages turning over. It's awesome. Number one, In the words of John Christ, check your heart. Check your heart. Not just do you have a pulse, but what's going on in your heart? Have you been half-hearted for a while? Have you been no-hearted? Have you been a little bit like Spock, where you've numbed out your heart? And you're just trying to go through life logical and cold? Have you been following Jesus and doing all the right things, but for the wrong reasons? There's a reason in the middle of the Bible, in the book of Proverbs, the writer says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. Because if your heart gets sick, everything falls apart. If your heart gets wounded, everything is touched by that. And if you lose that love at the center of it all, nothing else matters. So start by checking your heart. Number two, Identify the places where you've lost your first love. Think about the places where you're doing things, but from the wrong motivation. If you need some help identifying the places where you lost your first love, here's the question I would ask. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I doing what I'm doing? I asked you earlier why you're here today. When you do something good, ask yourself, why am I doing that? Am I doing it because I love Jesus? Or am I doing it because I'm trying to earn his love? Am I doing it because it's what I want to do? Or it's what I feel obligated to do? One of the hard things if you've been around church for a while is it's easy for good things to become obligations. Or things you do out of guilt. Especially if you grew up in the church, it's easy for good motivation to get twisted into guilt. So why are you doing what you're doing? You know, you know, I'm a big quote guy, and I love this quote from T.S. Eliot. It's one of my favorites. He says, the last and greatest treason is to do the right thing for the wrong reason. And this is where I think a lot of people's experience of churches. They're doing the right thing, but for the wrong reason. You're trying to earn something that can't be loved. You're doing something out of guilt that you no longer need to feel guilt for. And then number three, the passage ends with this reminder that we are to repent. Sorry, remember. Repent. 
and return to the practices which renew our love. If you want to regain that heart that you lost, if you want to wake that heart up, then, then John says through Jesus that you are to remember where you fall, fell from, you're to repent of that, and you're to return to the practices which renew that love. Here in Revelation 5, he says, remember therefore from where you have fallen. Remember where you were when you had that love and that passion. Repent and do the works that you did at first. And he, he puts a pretty strong caution there. He says to this church, if, if you don't do this, I'm going to take and remove your lampstand. The influence your church has is going to go away. Jesus promised that his church was not going to be overcome, but he doesn't promise that individual churches can't be closed. And thousands of churches close every year because they've lost that love. If you don't know what the word repent means, the word repent means to change your mind in a way that changes your action. And for some of us, we need to repent today. We need a change of mind that changes our actions. Not just you believe things that are different, but you actually begin to live different. And I try to always be honest with you. I'll give you the good news and the bad news. The the bad news is that you cannot get back to where you were. The good news is that you can discover what you once had. If you realize, man, it was, it was like 10 years ago that I had this passion and this fire and this love and it's gone, you're not going to get back to 10 years ago. You, you can't ever be a baby Christian again. You can't ever be a newlywed again. You, you can't ever be in the first job you had again. But you can discover that passion, that love you discovered there. There was a man who once fell from a really big height. And he did some really terrible things. It's kind of crazy that he's actually in the Bible. Because if he did what he did in our day, I'm not sure we'd let him in church. Much less write anything. His name is King David. He was a liar, murderer, and an adulterer. He'd been on the front page of the paper before he'd be on the stage of Cornerstone in this day. But in the book of Psalms, he wrote these words. He said, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. If you've lost your heart, if you've lost your love, if you realize you've been going through the motions, this is your prayer for this week. And this is what God can do. God is a God who raises dead hearts and he brings things that have fallen dormant back to life. And that's my prayer for some of you in this season. That you go from being a zombie in church as a follower of Jesus, you're kind of alive, but you're kind of dead, to somebody who's fully alive. Not because you did anything different, but because, because God did a great work of transformation in your heart. So let's pray together. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.